Have you ever considered the impact your work environment has on your health and your productivity? Enter Uplift Desk, a revolutionary standing desk designed to transform the way you work. And that's just the beginning of what Uplift Desk has to offer. With an emphasis on ergonomics and customization, Uplift Desk offers a solution that caters to the dynamic needs of modern professionals. Whether you're coding, designing, or podcasting, like I am right now, the flexibility to switch between sitting and standing can significantly enhance your focus and vitality. What makes Uplift Desk stand out is not just their commitment to quality and innovation, but also their dedication to creating a healthier workspace. With options to customize from over 100 desktop materials and a plethora of accessories, Uplift Desk ensures that your work setup is uniquely yours, promoting better posture and movement throughout the day. And here's an offer to get you started on a healthier work journey starting today. Go to upliftdesk.com slash timecrafting for 5% off your order. That's upliftdesk.com slash timecrafting to get 5% off your entire order. Your health, your productivity, your future self will thank you. Again, that's upliftdesk.com slash timecrafting and get 5% off your entire order today. Have you ever had that heart-stopping moment when you realized you forgot the password to a critical account? I have, and that's exactly why I switched to 1Password years ago, and honestly, it's been a game-changer. I can't do without 1Password, and I know that if you give it a try, you will feel the same way. And when you support our sponsors, then you support the show. So I encourage you to check out what 1Password has to offer One of the things 1Password has to offer is it combines top-tier security with an award-winning design, making password management a breeze for anyone, anywhere. From the moment I started using 1Password, I said goodbye to the days of resetting passwords and worrying about security breaches. You see, 1Password isn't just about convenience. It's about saving you from the real cost of data breaches and the daily time suck of password resets. It works seamlessly across all your devices, filling in passwords for you so that you can sign in with a click. And the best part, all you need to do is remember one strong password that protects everything else. I've been using 1Password for as long as I can remember. My family is using it. Everyone in this household has bought in. It's, again, a game changer. It's completely transformed how I handle my digital security and my family feels the same way. We've gotten away from using the same passwords again and again and again, or sticky note reminders or having that notebook that says passwords I must remember. Plus, 1Password is trusted by millions, including giants like IBM and Slack. With 1Password, my digital life and my family's digital life is not only more secure, but infinitely simpler. And look, if you've ever been frustrated by a family member constantly asking for passwords, 1Password's secure sharing has been a total relationship saver for me. It's so secure that the Associated Press relies on it in high-risk areas, which means it's more than capable of keeping your digital life safe and streamlined. So why not make the switch? Protect yourself, your family, and your business with 1Password. It's the simple and secure way to manage your digital life. And right now, listeners of A Productive Conversation get a free two-week trial at onepasswordcom slash productive convo. 
That's two free weeks at onepassword.com slash productive convo. Again, onepassword.com slash productive convo. Check out one password. I know you'll fall in love with it like my whole family has. Again, that's onepassword.com slash productive convo for two free weeks. Check it out today. I'm Mike Vardy. Ever found yourself deep in a project, your flow state so intense that the world around you just fades away? That's the magic zone where ideas take flight and your work truly comes to life. But what if, in a blink, it could all disappear? Hard drives fail, coffee spills, and yes, even the dreaded accidental delete happens. But fear not, because Crash Plan has your back. Don't wait for disaster to strike. Head over to crashplan.com slash timecrafting now for a free trial and secure your creations with their limited time buy one, get one offers. Supporting our sponsors means supporting this podcast. So take a moment to check them out. CrashPlan is the superhero of cloud-based data protection, specifically designed for people like us who live and breathe their digital creations. CrashPlan ensures that every file, every idea, and every piece of hard work is safely backed up and protected. With CrashPlan Professional, you get unlimited backup for your computers, not servers or cloud apps, just pure essential data protection for PC, Mac, and Linux. This means your business plans, designs, music, and documents are continuously encrypted and updated in their secure cloud without you lifting a finger. Imagine this, your laptop takes a dive during a late night work session. With CrashPlan, it's not a disaster, it's just a minor hiccup. Their service runs quietly in the background, safeguarding every change you make every 15 minutes. And if the worst happens, your files are just a few clicks away from being restored with unlimited version retention acting as your personal time machine. For businesses, CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities are a game changer. Buy as many licenses as you need, manage them with ease, and let your team or your IT admin restore data seamlessly, saving precious time and resources. So go to CrashPlan.com slash TimeCrafting now to sign up for a free trial and take advantage of one of their limited buy one, get one offers for a productive conversation listeners. That's CrashPlan.com slash TimeCrafting. Back up better with CrashPlan. Have you ever looked into fasting and thought, I love the benefits, but I can't go days without eating? Well, that's where Prolon comes in, transforming the fasting experience with a plant-based nutrition program that tricks your cells into thinking they're fasting without actually having to stop eating. Developed through decades of research at the University of Southern California Longevity Institute, Prolon is not just another diet, it's a scientifically backed program designed to support your body's natural processes. Now keep in mind, this isn't about cutting out food, it's about providing your body with the right nutrients to enter a fasting state while still eating. The program includes snacks, soups, and beverages, all carefully designed to support healthy blood sugar levels, cardiovascular health, and even reduce abdominal fat. And the convenience? It's unmatched. Everything you need comes in one box delivered right to your doorstep. Thousands of doctors now recommend Prolon for its health benefits, backed by Nobel Prize winning science. So if you're looking for a way to kickstart your health journey with all the benefits of fasting and none of the hunger, 
Prolon is the answer. And right now, Prolon is offering a Productive Conversation listeners 10% off their five-day nutrition program. Go to prolonlife.com slash timecrafting. That's P-R-O-L-O-N life.com slash timecrafting for this special offer. Again, that's prolonlife.com slash timecrafting. Check it out today. Ever caught yourself marveling at the seamless magic of everyday tech, like how noise-canceling headphones block out the world or the sheer bliss of meeting-free Fridays? Now imagine if there was a way to bring that kind of magic into selling online. Well, guess what? There is, and it's called Shopify. From the moment you decide to launch your online shop to opening your first physical store, and even when you're pinching yourself because, yes, you just hit a million orders, Shopify is there to guide your growth. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or the latest productivity tools, Shopify supports you everywhere with their all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. The checkout? Oh, it's a breeze for your customers, converting up to 36% better than other platforms. And with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant, you're selling more with way less effort. And you won't be alone in your Shopify journey because Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., supporting giants like Allbirds and Brooklinen and millions of entrepreneurs across 175 countries. Their award-winning support is always there, making sure businesses that grow, Grow with Shopify, and yours can be one of those businesses. And for those looking to level up, Shopify's endless integrations and third-party apps from on-demand printing to chatbots ensure your business is always ahead of the curve. So what are you waiting for? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com timecrafting, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com timecrafting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash timecrafting. Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. Meal planning is important because it prevents us from being a disappointed wreck when dinner time comes around and we have no clue what to make or even if we have the ingredients to make the meal. It's a time and a money saver, but most importantly, it frees up valuable brain space. Creating a meal plan prepares us for the week to come and gives us peace of mind that we're organized and can feed ourselves and our family. That's why I do it and that's why Plan to Eat helps me do it. Your subscription includes access to the Plan to Eat website and fully featured mobile apps on iOS and Android. And Plan to Eat gives you the tools to clip and organize recipes from any website, the ones your family loves and that fit your dietary preferences and needs. And you can create a meal plan around your schedule. Then what happens is the Plan to Eat software automatically creates an organized shopping list based on your plan. So sign up for your free trial at plantoeat.com slash timecrafting. That's plantoeat.com forward slash timecrafting. The coupon will be automatically applied to your account and can be used when you're ready to subscribe. It's valid for new customers only. Give Plan to Eat a try today. And this is the Productivityist Podcast. On this week's episode of the Productivityist Podcast, I talk with Greg Kirk. 
Creech. Greg is the founder of an institute that I'm not going to say right now because I talk about it at the beginning of the episode, but we talk about a ton of things. You know, the idea of of how Eastern waves are appealing to the West. We, we talk about a whole bunch of stuff re- regarding around Eastern Japanese philosophy, uh, how that can apply to productivity. Um, Greg is one of the leading experts in Japanese psychology in the U.S. He's the author of, of five books, and, and the one we're going to focus on particularly is called The Art of Taking Action, which is what this episode is titled, Lessons from Japanese Psychology. And it's become an Amazon bestseller. And it offers practical strategies for integrating ideas from Eastern philosophy with contemporary Western living. Let's just dive into this conversation I have with Greg Creech here on the Productivityist podcast. Enjoy. I'd like to welcome Greg Creech to the Productivityist podcast. Greg, thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Mike. So when we were going through the introductions for the call, uh, I normally do this with every guest before we start. Uh, the first thing I see is, is I see, you know, the, the um, and during the research, I see, you know, oh, wow, he's got this thing called the To-Do Institute. Great. This is great because Productivity is all about to-do. But then during the conversation, because I always ask, hey, how do we pronounce names and such? Because sometimes I have names that are more uh, challenging to pronounce. And and Greg, you mentioned that it's not actually called the To Do Institute. It's something, although To Do is in there. Can you can you elaborate on that? Well, it's actually it's it's mostly called the To Do Institute, but the actual um, the actual word as it was designed is a Japanese word, Todo, and Todo actually means Eastern Way. So um, it refers to us uh, basing our work kind of on things Japanese and Asian. And then the word todo in Spanish actually means all or everything. Um, but most of the time we actually are called the to-do institute in, in uh, Vermont where, where we're based and in the United States. And that very much uh, relates to the heart of our work in terms of issues about taking action. So I want to talk about uh, Japanese uh, psychology and, and the methodology. And, and because, I mean, I've spent some time looking at Kanban and Kaizen and, and I, I'm not as deep into it as a lot of other people that I know, but I know a lot of people like to use, you know, uh, Trello is a good example of, of the Kanban mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, we use it in the sauna as well when we're doing content flow and things like that. What, first off, what got you interested in, in Japanese culture and the philosophy surrounding it? And, and then how, how you bridged it over to the idea of, of, of what you do at the, at, at the, at the Institute. Well, it's been a, a long evolution. I actually first uh, got started about almost actually exactly 30 years ago. And uh, I was really just in a bookstore and and looking at some books and uh, looked up on the shelf. And there was a book called The Quiet Therapies, which is all about uh, different forms of, of psychotherapy and psychology in Japan by a man named David Reynolds. And that was kind of my first introduction to uh, any kind of mental health or uh, methods of psychology from Japan. Uh, and my initial interest was really very personal. Uh, you know, I was at the time I was in my early thirties and I was struggling, you know, with my life in certain ways. I was struggling with relationships. I was struggling with, uh, getting things done and, and not getting things done that I should be doing. Uh, and, and I found it tremendously helpful on a personal basis. So, did more reading. I went to some workshops. I ended up getting trained. I never really intended to start a, an institute and make this my life's work. So I feel more like it discovered me in that sense. But uh, 
uh, I found that it was a refreshing change from the uh, more traditional kind of Western psychology, Western psychotherapeutic approach that many of us are exposed to. And since I had all, already been a student of Zen and interested in Asian philosophy, it really resonated with me. So, uh, so it was a good match for me personally. And ultimately, it, it allowed me to do this as my work. Uh, and I think that I can offer people an, an alternative to uh, a lot of the kind of traditional approaches to therapy and psychology that they mostly get exposed to in the West. Now, the ones that you study, now it's, it's uh, again, pronunciation, Morita therapy, right? That's, that's, is that right? right? So that's, yeah, there's three methods sure. that I focus on, particularly in, in my books. And one of them is Morita therapy, uh, which is kind of the, has a more action element. It, it's uh, named after a psychiatrist named Shoma Morita, uh, who lived about a oh, hundred years ago or so and uh, is often considered as rooted in Zen principles or Zen psychology. So, uh, so that would be one of the three approaches. The second one you actually mentioned, and that's Kaizen. Um, and uh, just a little bit of background on Kaizen. It, even though it's, it's got a Japanese name, it was actually developed by uh, an American, uh, Ed, Edward Demings, who was sent over to Japan after World War II to help Japan kind of rebuild their industry. And the Kaizen approach is also very oriented towards kind of taking action and what they call incremental improvement. So uh, it's a nice, um, a nice kind of adjunct to Morita therapy, very practical, very concrete. And then third approach is called Nikon, which means something like inside looking. And that's really the reflective or self-reflective element of Japanese psychology, which has a lot to do with uh, developing healthy relationships with people with an attitude of appreciation, which cu with cultivating a sense of gratitude for the way that we're supported and just kind of the, uh, things that we're given in life. So those three together, I think are a nice recipe for a, a delicious cake. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think people are drawn to the Japanese ways. I mean, I'm seeing more and more people that are kind of like, I mean, meditation is an example. I mean, again, that's not exclusively Japanese, but we're seeing a lot more, uh, a, a lot more uh, people in the Western world, you know, kind of gravitating towards Eastern, uh, you know, philosophies and methodologies. Why do you think that is? Well, um, I think it really depends on the person, but I think the, there's uh, a lot of ancient wisdom that really comes from the East, you know, from China and, and India uh, and Japan. And, and you see things like yoga, like uh, Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, even 30 years ago when I was starting this work, there was very limited amount of that going on in the United States. And now, you know, acupuncture is reimbursable by insurance. Yeah, and, my, my, uh, my wife's an acupuncturist, actually. So oh, she yeah, yes, yeah. she, she studied yeah. TCM and she's an acupuncturist, actually. As we're recording this, she's getting ready to head off to work at practice. So yeah, she's been doing that for almost 20 years. And it's something that I never would have uh, gone to until I met her. And uh, there's definitely some things that you just, it, it's quite amazing, actually. It is. And I think ac acupuncture and Chinese medicine, both both of which I have an interest in personally, are good examples of where uh, Western culture has really uh, drawn on and, and imported these practices and methods and even philosophies from uh, from the East. And I think in some cases, those things can be integrated 
Um, and you see in a lot in medicine, for instance, you see the idea of the integration of kind of Eastern and Western medicine. Um, and, and that's actually even taking place in China. When I was in China about 10 years ago, uh, there were hospitals there that were, were combining both traditional Chinese medicine and Western medicine. Um, but in some cases, you see that there are really opposing philosophies. Uh, and, and so you see kind of a, a different philosophical foundation between an Eastern approach and a Western approach. And you see some of that, I think, in terms of the kind of Japanese psychology that we teach. Some of it can be integrated and some of it is just kind of a different way of understanding and looking at, at the world and at ourselves. One of the things that you talk about, um, and I'm referring to a particular blog post, is you talk about the idea of how Merida therapy can be used as a resource for moving forward when you're kind of facing the period of inaction. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because, uh, I mean, you've got the book called The Art of Taking Action, which I definitely want to dive into a little bit as well. But how does, uh, most people don't think of that idea of, of a therapy that necessarily is putting people from inaction to action, uh, especially in terms of like personal productivity. They don't think about like emotional blocks or, but to actually stave off things like procrastination and stuff. I find that quite fascinating. Well, uh, I, I actually think it is fascinating. And, and one of the things that, uh, uh, I find is when I give presentations and do workshops for mental health professionals, the, the area that is uh, often considered to be the most challenging uh, task for a therapist or a mental health professional, as stated by them, is often getting their clients, getting people to essentially take action. Um, so a lot of these other kinds of, of issues that come up that have to do with expressing feelings or uh, talking or um, the kinds of things that you would do in a counseling session, uh, are much easier for for therapists because they're trained well in that. But when it comes down to it, uh, the way that we make changes in our life is really by doing things and doing things different in many cases. And Morita therapy is a, a wonderful uh, approach for getting people to move from thinking and talking and deciding to actually taking action in, in the real world. If you look at the uh, the problem of procrastination, people not doing things that they need to be doing. And you say, well, why, why doesn't a person uh, do something that they need to be doing? And in many cases, the reason is because they don't feel like it. Right? Mm -hmm. So you know, if, you, if you walk into the kitchen and you've got uh, tons of dirty dishes and silverware that's you know, piled above the rim of the sink, um, you may not feel like doing it. And so many of us put off doing things because we just don't feel like it. And where Marita therapy is a, a wonderful uh, strategy is that it allows us to make this shift from what I call a feeling-centered approach to life in general, meaning that the measure of whether we do something or don't do it is, is our feelings, to a more purpose-centered approach to life, which shifts the measure from whether we feel like doing something to whether it's something that needs to be done. Um, so in one case, it's our internal feelings, uh, that are guiding us as to whether to take action or not. But as we make that shift, it's the needs of the situation. Do the needs of the situation support my doing those dirty dishes? Does, do the needs of the situation require me to get my taxes, uh, done and filed, right? Uh, do the needs of the situation require me to get out of bed at three in the morning and change my infant daughter's dirty diaper. Uh, so 
when we make that shift, we find that we procrastinate a lot less because uh, we still have those feelings of wanting to do something or not wanting to do it. But what we're responding to more often now is whether something needs to be done. You know, when I was talking to John Acuff on a recent episode of the podcast, we talked about, uh, you know, his yard as an example. He wrote the new book, Finish, and he talks about how, uh, you know, the idea of the yard needing to be perfect or needing to be taken care of uh, was something that was weighing on him. But he realized that that's not something that needs to be done at that point. It was the feeling of him having to do it was there, but he realized it wasn't really what was the most important, the most necessary at that time. I think he's straightened his yard out since then. But I think the point there is, is, is again, this idea of of, you know, having that, and you talk about this, the feeling set, the feelings pushing you as opposed to the purpose. And perfectionism is one of the things you touch on too, right? And John touched on it as well, is that the reason we don't finish is because one of the reasons that we're afraid of, like, say, finishing, or one of the reasons that we uh, don't start is because perfectionism comes into play. What, what, uh, you know, in your book, you talk about like how perfectionism can get in the way. What, what do you what are your thoughts on that and how does how does uh, you know again this idea of J- Japanese psychology and what what it can teach you push you uh, away from this idea of perfectionism and, and help you overcome it well I think that there's a couple of different things one one comment I wanted to make about that whole idea of perfectionism is I, I'm a writer and I was listening to a recorded talk by um, the the uh, now deceased author Peter Matheson, who wrote the book, The Snow Leopard. Uh, He was a National Book Award winner. And in his talk, he says that for a writer, uh, in reality, a a book is never actually finished. Mm -hmm. It's simply abandoned. Yep. Yep. (laughs) I've heard that quote before. And it's true. As I'm a writer, too. And exactly. It's like, yeah, it's yeah. Because we always want to make it better, right? Yeah. And there, there's all, there is always something we can make better. Um, and it's one of the great things about working with a deadline, whether it's a real deadline, for example, from a publisher or a self-imposed deadline, because you have to just stop because it's time to stop. And so it's a great example, I think, where um, if part of the needs of the situation are that we have to have something uh, completed or done at a particular time, then we work with that need, even though our feelings and thoughts may be saying, this isn't really ready. And I know that if I had one more day, I could improve this. Um, uh, and so if we can work with, and again, with shift to a more purpose centered view of things, then it's much easier for us to kind of just stop and not allow our, our feelings of being concerned or worried, or this isn't really good enough to kind of dictate our, our action, which in many cases ends up meaning that we're late or significantly late with something. So the, the other side of this is that, um, that has to do with perfectionism is that perfectionism really is a very, uh, is grounded in grandiosity. In other words, it's, it's grounded in the idea that I really have a very high view of myself to think that I can write a book that would be uh, somehow perfect or or great even. Um, and so there's a humility that comes very naturally with uh, Japanese psychology. And, and humility isn't something that's often considered tremendously valuable in terms of our Western cultural view of things. But in in Asia, humility is a very important quality uh, and something that I think can be uh, cultivated in a realistic way. And and there's a if we work from a humble standpoint, 
then we don't expect to create something perfect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, if, if we really are recognizing our limitations and our, uh, our weaknesses, for example, um, we do the best we can. And that's a much more realistic measure of basically what we're trying to do to do the best we can under these circumstances. But the idea that we can somehow create something that's uh, perfect or great, uh, we recognize that, that that really is kind of grounded in a, a certain kind of grandiosity. So often, uh, as we become more humble, we're less likely to actually be uh, stymied by this idea of perfectionism because we do the best we can in a situation, we work with the needs of the situation, and then we accept what we can't control and, and we move on to the next thing we need to do. You know, one of the other things when it comes to uh, this unfinished uh, and, and being, you know, especially as a writer, is, uh, you know, I've read, I mean, again, you go back to some of your work from like 2004. Uh, you know, I mean, we've been writing about this stuff for a while. You've been writing about this particularly for a long time. I've been writing about productivity for a while. Is that even when a book is done, it, it can evolve on, online afterwards right so it's not as if uh you know the the work ever really ends but it's 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 the um it's the uh maybe the platform or the um or the medium that 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 you where where it exists that if you don't i mean again there are lots of people who have a book in them who have a you know a, a film in them anything creative or even just they want to do something better but there's that fear of not being able to do it right or uh, and you talk about this as well, the idea of 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 saying, you know what, I, I'm only going to do these things that I like and I'm going to avoid doing the things that I, I don't like. And in some cases, at least for me, that the things you don't like is maybe working on the thing you very well should be working on. Right. Uh, can you talk about the, that trap of, of of the things that you uh, you know, only working on those things you like and then avoiding the things that you don't like? Sure. And I think um, that, again, that that sense of aversion has to do with fear or anxiety or just discomfort. Uh, um, you know, I I like going out to dinner and I, I don't like washing dirty dishes. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if I my life on that basis, um, I'm going to spend a lot of money on restaurants and I'm going to have a lot of dirty dishes in my sink. So it, at some point, if we want to essentially be um, more functional, but also more successful, more productive, we have to be able to make that that shift. And I think uh, part of that is is really in recognizing that there are things that are important to do. Um, and they're also often the things that we feel least comfortable doing, right? So mm-hmm. um, who's, who's writing a book, particularly their first or second book, may feel very anxious about it. And, and if it is your first or second book, you're not probably very good at it yet. Um, and so you recognize that and you really want to have a good book. Uh, and so the result can be, you don't put it the time into it because it's easier to do things that are simple that you know how to do. You know how to drive to the uh, cleaners to pick up your laundry. You know how to go to the supermarket and shop for food. Um, those things are easy, but those things aren't going to probably make a huge difference in the long term of your life where getting your book out might make a huge difference. Um, and it's also a way of creatively expressing yourself. And I'm a big cheerleader for the idea that each of us has something to creatively express. And in many cases, we're stopped by fear or anxiety or lack of confidence. Uh, and I think uh, it's very important for us to really 
put our energy into that unique creative expression. It's what we can offer the world as unique individuals, um, as our contribution to the world while we're alive. So to me, it's if whether it's poetry or writing or, or art, um, or dance, if it's, it's something that you feel is inside you, uh, the important thing is to be able to get it out and express it and turn it into something real. Even, even if it fails, you know, the, the writer Dostoevsky, the famous, uh, Russian writer actually had two full suitcases worth of manuscripts that had never been published or accepted that he lost at a train station. <laughs> so here's this person we consider one of the, you know, the great classic writers in the, in the history of, of the world. And yet he had all this writing that was never published and accepted. Um, so this idea of, of our books evolving online, you know, because, of the system we have now is both a blessing and a curse in my opinion. You know, in the past we, we would write a book and as a writer, you would be done with it and you'd move on to the next book. And now you can kind of continue editing forever, right. And just, uh, issuing updates online. But I do think it's, it's extremely important that people accept the fact that fear and anxiety over things they're uncomfortable with, uh, is a very natural thing. But again, we, we don't want to let our feelings paralyze us or stop us. So in, in Morita therapy, we have this concept of taking your feelings with you, right? If you're, if you're going for a ride, um, you put your feelings in the back seat, you have them buckle their seatbelt, and you go where you need to go. You go to writing your book or uh, writing your play or writing your poems and publishing them on your own. Uh, and you do those things feeling anxious and uh, having no self-confidence at all. Um, and you take those feelings and they just kind of um, come along with you on, on a leash, but you don't let them dictate your action or inaction. Let's talk about this idea of, it. Uh, you know, w when someone wants to explore these types of therapies or, or Japanese psychology, other than going to, to your institute and reading your work, like, is this something that's widely accessible throughout North America or do people have to really do some digging or like, where's a good jumping off point for people? I would say that a, a good place to start is probably just reading. That's where I started. And um, uh, there's a few books. Uh, around one of them is my book called The Art of Taking Action: Lessons from Japanese Psychology, and and it gives you a kind of good overview and a lot of the principles that I've been talking about. Uh, there's a, a course that I teach once a year um, called The Art of Taking Action, and it's an unusual course because we actually have people select a project to work on, so you learn about taking action by actually taking action on something real in your life. Uh, but I think that. Some people can go very far with just, you know, reading and some people need someone to, you know, coach them and work with them personally uh, in order to learn this material. So it really varies with with every person, but it isn't material that I think is uh, kind of out there in the world in, a, in an easily accessible way. You do need to do a little digging, but if you do, you'll find this material either through our institute or through my writings or the writings of, of some of my colleagues. Uh, and I think it, it offers some very different views of things. For instance, we don't suggest that you try to motivate yourself or psych you, yourself up. So if you need to exercise and you feel really lethargic and lazy, um, what, what our recommendation is, is go ahead and notice that you're feeling lethargic and while you're feeling lethargic and while you're feeling lazy and while you're having a little, uh, 
rehearsal in your mind, a little dialogue of, oh, I'll just exercise tomorrow and sit back down on the couch and see what's what's uh, on Netflix. While you're having that go on, put on your running shoes and put on your shorts and put on your t-shirt and go outside the door the whole time, not feeling like it. And uh, I do this often with swimming because um, for many years, I don't, I didn't enjoy swimming, but I knew it was good for me. And so uh, being in Vermont, you know, I would get up in the morning and it would be 10 below zero outside and, and I would go to a, a health club that had a pool, but I still had to go outside and start the car and that weather and shave off the ice from the windshield. And um, none of this I felt like doing. Um, and often, even as I was about to get in the pool, I would think I really don't feel like swimming. Um, and then I would get in the pool and I would start swimming. And after maybe three or four or five laps, my feelings would shift. I would start feeling exhilarated. Um, my, I could feel my muscles and my blood pumping. I might actually have a, a little bit of a sense of pride that I actually got in the pool and started exercising when I felt really tired that morning. So what we find is that instead of trying to get your mind to change, um, you allow your mind to be the way it is and uh, you put your body in the lead, right? So that we have a maxim that's called lead with the body. Mm -hmm. So your body is in the lead. It takes the mind with you. And in many cases, though maybe not all cases, um, your mind, meaning your feelings and thoughts, actually will change after you've taken action. So here's this idea that um, you don't change your mind before you take action. Your mind is changed after you take action. You know, Greg, this has been a great uh, topic to discuss. I want to finish off with one final thing, and I want to talk about the idea of reflection. I know you've got a, a book coming out. Uh, I want to talk about that idea of reflection because I think when I talk to people, uh, I'm very, very uh, clear on the fact that you you need to ask, you need to look back and review and that's something a lot of people don't do. You've got a, a book coming out called Question Your Life. Uh, and, and I definitely want to dive a little bit into that before we wrap up, because I think it's something that often gets neglected. We get, we get so caught in the doing and the moving forward that we don't take a, a moment to reflect and figure out why are we doing this stuff in the first place or are we doing the right things? Can you touch on that a little bit before we close things up? Well, I think uh, a big piece of it is that we can get very good at taking action. And there are some people who are just naturally good at that. I was never one of those people. But there are people who just naturally are very action-oriented people. The problem is, is that if that becomes uh, the dominant or almost exclusive side of our personality, um, it becomes a situation where here, here's a person that um, gets a lot done and they don't care who they have to step on in order to do it, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, we, we see someone who's very action-oriented, but they're so focused on what they need to do that there's no consideration of other people's welfare, other people's feelings, so the relationships suffer. And so to me, an important part of self-reflection, which is actually should be a part of taking action, is reflecting on the impact that we're having on the world. And that's um, part of when I talk about self-reflection from a standpoint of Japanese psychology, that's a big element of it is looking at what impact is I, have I had on the world today? So we look at what I gave to the world today. We look at the troubles and difficulties that I caused. Um, and it gives us a sense of how we've impacted on other people, on nature, on, on the planet. Uh, and it informs then our choice of, of actions that we need to take tomorrow. So, um, 
So my book, Question Your Life, is really lays out a very specific and structured method for self-reflection, which can be done uh, in conjunction with kind of a spiritual path or in terms of relationships, like with trying to build your, your marriage or relationships with your family, or just in a very practical way in terms of looking at um, the, the underlying idea that I want to live my life in such a way that I make a contribution to the world. And to do that, I need to look sincerely at the impact I'm having, both good and bad, as far as the, the impact uh, I'm having on the world. So if we can do that kind of reflection on a regular basis, I think it strengthens our ability, not just to, to do things, to, to take action, but to take the kinds of actions that hopefully will really make the world a better place, improve our communities, improve our relationships with our loved ones, um, and, and ultimately give us something that's fulfilling and meaningful in our life. Greg, again, this has been great. I, you know, I mean, I've not spent a lot of time in this uh, realm, but I definitely have uh, been gravitating more and more towards it, especially, you know, the idea of Kaizen and, and just, you know, learning to, to dive into this, this um, Eastern philosophies where uh, other than obviously at the website, which I'll list, can people find you on social media or, or, or is there any place where they can connect with you personally? Well, uh, the best place probably would be um, we have a Facebook page uh, for the Todo Institute. And um, and then if they want to uh, get my books, they can look on Amazon. The Art of Taking Action uh, is, is actually a, uh, one of the best sellers on Amazon in terms of the Zen category. Um, but if they want to contact me directly, I'm happy to give out my email. And that's Greg, G-R-E-G-G, two G's at the end, the at symbol, and then Toto Institute, all one word, dot org. So it's greg at todoinstitute.org. Awesome. Greg, thanks so much for joining me today on the Productivity Podcast. Well, thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks to Greg for joining me this week on the podcast. You can find all the things we talked about in the show notes, and you can find that over on the blog. Just go to the podcast uh, category at the top of the website, and you'll find it in its most recent uh, update. Uh, if you're listening to this the week it came out, if not, just do a search for Greg Creech and you will find it there. Uh, also, uh, we will uh, have the weekly bonus episode featuring Greg where we talk about his idea of 30,000 days. And there's uh, some interesting stuff there. If you are a supporter of the show, supporter of Productivityist, head over to patreon.com slash Productivityist to learn more about that. If you're not a member and if you are, then you'll be able to get that podcast episode as a bonus episode shortly after this one has landed. Uh, thanks to John Polster for producing this show. Thanks to the rest of my team for helping me put the show together. And thanks to you for listening. Until next time, I am Mike Vardy of Productivityist reminding you to stop guessing and start going. 